Okay, good morning, uh, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Maguire, CEO of XM Australia, Andy Laven, Senior Partner of Econs, and uh, Richard Rodolia, CEO of Matrix Global Holdings. Thanks, gentlemen, uh, for joining us today. Great to see you again. Um, let me start, uh, Peter, with you. Let's talk a little bit about markets. Um, oil continuing to weaken, tumble. Yeah. Uh, tumble was the headline in one of those bulletins. Um, there's there's one result of, of a question we put earlier, uh, which is you know talking about the sort of risk premium really in the market uh, and how that's been weakening really in the last month rather than strengthening. Um, so you know why is that? Just too much oil? Oh, I think the I, I think there's another side to it as, as well. Uh, I, and good afternoon, greetings from Sydney. You know, I think probably the Israel-Palestine war premium seems to have dissipated a little bit. That's t- come out of the market. It's very evident now. It's seventy-seven bucks eight cents for NYMEX, and you've got Brent running at eighty-one fifty. So yeah, they've been uh, all the hot airs come out of it, Diala, and. It's been a time probably over the last couple of days to be short. This week been a very, you know, big week last week. S&P up 6% or just under. We understood understood what Powell's thoughts were as far as the Fed. And uh, US dollars come off a little bit of pressure. And certainly the everyone's sold energy and sold it down hard. And those export numbers, as far as what China thought that we might, we may see a little bit of a bounce there. They were shocking. So there's the... I suppose that's the storyline that we've seen in the last couple of days. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, thanks for that, Peter. Uh, Andy, I mean, let's talk. I mean, I said, you know, is it too much oil? I think there's agreement. There's enough oil around at the moment. OPEC is sticking to its cuts. It's probably likely to cut more now if we see this price direction continue. But what about demand? I mean, Richard, um, Peter just mentioned uh, uh, China. Um, I mean, five. Point four percent growth this year. Uh, that's not bad, uh, you know, considering what everyone was saying a few months ago. I mean, that's the, that's good for the new normal for China, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It's good. It's not back to where they were. And I think um, there is some uncertainty about that. As we've seen, China is not maybe as robust as historically it has been. Um, and, and I think that's if there's anything that's uncertain in terms of demand, it's China. That plus, is it going to be a cold winter? And that's it, really. So I think plenty of oil, some uncertainty about how cold the winter is going to be, some some clear uncertainty about China's demand, and therefore oil is coming off. Everything else, to be quite honest, it from a pricing perspective is mostly noise. Now, clearly, there's a, a lot of big noise out there like uh, Israel and, Pakistan, and Palestine, but it's not noise that people are kind of having to listen to. Okay. Yeah. Well, certainly the market's already absorbed absorbed that. I mean, of course, nobody's saying nothing will happen in terms of physical escalation, but that's being discounted right now. Morning, uh, Richard, or good evening, actually, probably. Good, e- good evening. Uh, yes, yeah. it is. Um, just give us a, give us your take on on sentiment, economic sentiment in the U.S. now, as we sort of come to the end of this rather you know healthy year for the US economy despite uh, you know all the expectations earlier on um what's what what are people fe- feeling about 2024 are we going to see a, a soft landing and soft recession I, I it's hard to predict what that's going to be I, and I don't even dare give a, a guess to it I mean we we are um 
I said this before in the last time we talked, um, we're moving along. The United States seems to be relatively stable. Our demand is down a little bit. Gasoline demand has been down pretty significantly. Um, and so it's kind of, it's, it's nothing is great. Interest rates have gone flat. Uh, um, Peter just said the stock market made a big re- recovery. It's kind of, everything's going back to sitting in a comfortable range. You know, two things. One, U.S. oil production, I think, reached its highest level ever uh, in August. They're just above, above 13 million barrels. Um, and I went back and we were talking about this just before we got on i looked at the oil price you know the oil price is almost at the exact middle of the exact middle of the last 20 years so here we are in the exact middle of where the market has been for 20 years we've gone up and down and all around and i think talking about it really is something that we get used to because we have to but in reality what are the other things that are going on and i think to me um one of the key things has always been has been OPEC plus. That's the biggest change I think it's occurred in the last number of years. They've decided to make they've have a decision that they're going to keep prices stable. I think they'll probably see greater cuts. Um, I but I do think one of the things that we could see from the US, and this is kind of where our, our I think our energy policy might have been a little misguided. We're at 13 point 13 million right now. Part of that reason is uh, drilled but uncompleted wells have, have gone down the lowest level in the last 10 years. So we've basically been using the inventory uh, of, of what has been drilled, but but we're uncompleted. So we're seeing that kind of coming back in and causing the, inc- the, the increase. We've seen Chevron and Exxon make the large decision here that we are not going to go far afield to go look for oil. We're going to look in our backyard. And so the U.S. is, is kind of, and these large energy companies, um, I think we could see another decision by BP or someone else to snap somebody up, kind of turning away from the transition and saying, you know what, we better take it, uh, take advantage of this right now and, and use some of this money that we're making and look to make sure that we can maintain a, an oil production level that is that is going to be able to supply the market, um, providing the peak demand is not coming down the road just anytime soon. Okay. Yeah, well, that peak demand scenario is, of course, still lots of disagreement there between the IA and OPEC on peak demand, whether it's in the next few years, in a decade or so. Uh, Peter, let's just talk about, again, the oil price, you know, it has dropped, obviously, in the last month, uh, yeah. uh, ironically, uh, a bit, you know, still, uh, and so looking even more cheap. I mean, everyone's saying even at 90, oil is cheap because of inflation and because of historical values uh, that Richard just mentioned. You but versus other commodities, for example, how are other commodities doing, relatively speaking, you know, to, in terms of inflation impact? Well, if you put your mind across to the likes of gold and, you know, there's a lot of ways that that's decoupled, I think, against the US dollar has been very evident. You know, you had that very strong move to the upside and gold's actually touched 2000 or 2010. I think it's about 1975 at the moment. So there's one instance I think precious has been, you, you couldn't say that 20 years ago, uh, Richard's uh, example, you can't say the same about gold. You can't say the same, probably you could about some of the grains. But there are some commodities that have shot very, very well to the upside and others that have languished. The likes of base metals have performed very, very well. And think of iron ore, think of copper, um, probably tin, aluminium and and nickel and zinc. Um, And some of those, it depended upon, you know, the crop. Um, Some have performed incredibly well over that 20 year window or that that period of time. Um, The likes, some, you know, sugar. Uh, probably coffee, but others have, um, yeah, performed, they've been lackluster. And that's the, I suppose, the great attraction of these markets, Diala. Um, You've got to find one from a trading perspective. I look at it from the lens that we look at it. You know, we've got over 10 million clients and they want movement. They just want it to be up or down. So I suppose it's a little bit unfair. But as Richard said again, um, we haven't been disappointed in movement over the last 20 years. 
And how much is the China story uh, sort of pushing those metals that you mentioned, which are doing relatively well? I mean, is that that support is coming from China? Is it coming from the US? Oh, I think it's a global demand. I mean, you know, you've only got to go to, I was in, like my travels in the last month, I, I, I went to Mumbai, Singapore, Crane Central. I mean, the cranes and the construction mm-hmm. in India is just mind blowing. Um, UAE, I saw plenty of cranes and plenty of construction. So, you know, the, it's just the, the need for raw materials hasn't gone away. The need naturally for electricity and how you're going to power these particular um, projects. And then you're looking at, you know, the overhang. And this is where we're sitting now with 91 or 90 million uninhabited apartments and building and, and, and homes in China. What happens to that overhang? Are we going to see that? get absorbed by the market or is it going to be a great washout and is Jim Chanos going to be right he's been talking about it for enough years now to say that the Chinese property market's going to be the one that's going to capitulate everything so the old story someone's debt is another person's equity and who's holding the debt domestic banks in China and 120 global banks and you understand as well as anyone the contagion of that because yeah. people sell the book or they you know use all these different exotic derivatives to um, to manage risk yeah, it's it's certainly a, a, a bit of a scary a scary risk there. Uh, Andy, um, let's talk a bit about, I mean, I wanted to get to that with you. Richard mentioned the recent M&A activity that we've seen in the US shale patch. Uh, and, and we do have an article on BP and there's been some talk in the market is BP next. You know, to, are we going to see uh, that being bought? I mean, in terms of valuation in the market, is it an attractive asset? And do we really see that sort of uh, contagion, if you like, coming into the European space of, of M&A? Is this a good time for it? I, I, so the the simple answer is I don't know. I think for me, BP is probably at the top end of it, what anybody would be looking at. It would be a big company for anybody to 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 buy out. Um, you would have to have a really good valuation, and then I think you'd have to be very very wary of the regulatory oversight in terms of overlapping assets, the amount of equity where they would have in various projects. I I can understand why people are talking about it. A lot of change at the top, um, a lot of change in terms of strategy. One could argue a lack of leadership. So they would be a prime takeover target. I just think it would give anybody indigestion, to be quite honest. Yeah. And what about, I mean, we've had another pretty good year for oil companies, generally speaking, in terms of revenues following last year's very strong, you know, gains, windfall gains. Any indication uh, of, of, and, you know, and again, Richard mentioned the likes of BP and Shell are sort of retracting a bit from their energy transition sort of speak, if you like. But are we seeing evidence of more money going into E&P? You know, are we actually seeing those new volumes, uh, commitments going in? So I think a lot of the major old companies have got a, a challenge in terms of meeting what they perceive to be their external obligations and what their consumers and regulatory authorities want versus what they see in terms of reality. I think, in, in all honesty, if you sat in most of the board meetings of large oil and gas companies, you would hear a very, very similar conversation to what the old ministers in the Middle East are saying. You cannot just turn energy off. You have to kind of keep moving forward. If you look at some of the the immature markets like Africa, you cannot stop producing oil and gas for those. And if you just stop, you see what Richard was talking about. People use up wells that have been completed 
and you don't drill new wells. Well, guess what? You can't just drill a new well and turn it on in next six, six weeks unless you sit, happen to sit in Saudi Arabia. Most places drill wells, they then do some seismic, drill some more wells, then they do an investment, then they do this. And three or four or five years down the road, you might have oil. So the reality of what people want and what makes sense is a very difficult place to be. So I think a lot of the oil and gas companies are struggling with that internally. And I think that's why you saw not just BP, but also Shell stepping back from their green commitments because they were suddenly realizing if we step back too quick, we'll actually run out of money because we won't be producing the oil and gas, which is given us the cash flow to invest in the green. And then it, it all, all hell will break out. And, and that's yeah. no different from what Saudi's been saying for several years now. Yep. Yeah. And Saudi, of course, their, their cost of production, though, in the Gulf is much lower. Richard, on that point of cost of production, I mean, the shale cost of production has dropped well, you know, in the last few years through through different sort of advances, I suppose, in technology. But at, at what price would would it would, would they sort of start to pause again, have, having seen this resurgence a bit? Uh, you know, is it what, sixty dollars the cost of production right now? I, I, I think it's lower dollar oil price. Well, yeah. I think it's 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 you know, it used to get it was in the forties, if not lower, but then the problem is after going through COVID and losing all yeah. the employees, then we've had we've had wage inflation and just general inflation has caused the cost to go up. I think what these I think it doesn't it doesn't really matter that much because Exxon and Chevron and the other guys will just keep on buying them up and they're going to drive their costs even lower and they'll build a bigger pipeline to Baytown and that's it. Um, I I think the mistake, and I've said this for a, a year or so or even longer, the, mis- the issues are not now. Uh, both the Saudi ministers telling us and the OPEC minister saying is saying the rest of the world needs to get us act together and invest it upstream because if it doesn't invest in upstream down the road, if, if we and I'm going to go with OPEC's belief that demand is going to continue to arrive, not the IEA, which I believe is a government organization, to, you know, basically saying what the government wants it to say. Um, I think we're going to see a real problem, and so you've got massive amounts of money that have gone into the energy transition. I think the energy transition is, in ma- many ways, a misallocation of massive capital. Orsted just is stopping, you know, stopping the two largest um, offshore wind projects in, in the United States. Now, we've got huge problems now with EVs. They're starting to show. Um, Tesla, lead, Tesla, and I think it's called BVD. I think whatever the Chinese um, mm. uh, electric company, they're the only two that really seem to be making any money. Uh, Ford loses thirty-five thousand dollars a car. So I think there's this this misallocation of capital that's happened, and Chevron and Exxon, um, Exxon, Exxon kind of got away from its. Uh, board problem it had a couple of years ago. Um, and they've said, we are going to invest in oil and we're going to spend a lot of money in it because we think that's where the money is going to be. But the question becomes really is, you know, when we talk about the energy transition, we're all talking about how great it, you know, it's everyone's moving ahead, full stream ahead. I wonder what happens in 2025 if we get new leadership changes in, in the governments of the world. You know, mm-hmm. what happens if, if, if a Republican comes into power in the United States? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Energy transition will stop dead in its tracks and we will mm-hmm. see oil production up. And to me, there is therein lies that, you know, this shows you energy policy is really a long-term process because we've never seen this before where high energy prices always begat. And Andy just said it, production, not today, but three and five years down the road. Imagine if we had been producing, you know, 15 million barrels a day in the U.S. Imagine the political pressure that would have put on Russia, Iran, 
and Saudi. You know, so here you have, you know, energy policy, which went totally green, which now is giving Venezuela a, 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 a kind of a green yeah. card to go ahead. You can't make it up. You literally cannot make up the policy, which in my case, I believe is misguided. And I think the real question is going to be is we'll get through these couple of years. We're going to plot along. We'll go between 70 and 90 or whatever the number is going to be for Brent. But the real question is going to be is what happens when people get tired of through inflation and higher prices uh, want to change in leadership? And will that leadership be all in on the transition? And I, my sense yeah. is that's a that's a bet I wouldn't want to. Well, well I know what people, I believe. Yeah. And, and some people are making the other argument that people are so fed up with being beholden to oil price spikes when we have problems, when we have shortages, when we have geopolitical, that that, that actually some people, of course, pro-transition camp will say, well, it's but, actually speeding, Dalla, speeding Dalla, up. We need Dalla, to but, up. But mm. it's it's not pop. We went 70 years to build the oil infrastructure. 90 years is taken. We're not going to change in 10 years. It's just not. And so, yes, you might believe that a, a spike in prices should bring on the transition. And then what? We go to China yeah. to get our rare earth metals yeah. for, for EVs. Uh. Yeah, no, and I think it's very obvious from US policy that you just mentioned the Venezuela loosening uh, for six months at least. They're trying to experimenting there. They've turned a blind eye to Iranian extra oil. It's going to China, so they can't do anything about it anyway. Andy, let's talk about Russian oil. Uh, and again, you know, the trend for expectations for next year. There's been some fallout domestically, uh, you know, on its economy a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously the revenues, the revenue drop has impacted Russia a little bit, but obviously a Russian oil continues to flow. Uh, products, it's 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 taking its own stance there now and then, just to squeeze Europe a little bit and elsewhere. What's the what's the feeling for 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 that going forward next year? More of the same? Uh, I, unless something changes between Russia and Ukraine, it is going to be more of the same politically. Um, and I think the thing we also need to remember is that the sanctions and the structures that were put in place were never intended to stop Russian oil. If you stopped Russian oil, we wouldn't be talking about seventy dollars a barrel. There is no way it would be. It would be the hundred and forty, hundred and fifty. Right. It was. It was all about how do we reduce the amount of money that Russia yeah. make, and that's actually quite difficult to do, in all honesty, because. We don't have a global economy with one government. Therefore, you know, one it, it kind of one person's debt is one person's equity. One person's cheap oil is other's person's really good oil, right? So it, it doesn't work. Um, so it's going to be more of the same. It's going to be more complicated. It's going to be more logistically challenging. There is going to be a lower margin. Russia won't make as much money per barrel, et cetera, et cetera. But it will just carry on like we've seen essentially with Iran. You know, the, the markets balance because it has to balance. There is no there is not sufficient oil that you can suddenly turn off a whole country, a whole, virtually a whole continent and just say, oh, well, never mind. So it's yeah. going to continue very much as it is. Okay, Peter. Uh, let's let's talk a bit about. Um, well, there you go. There's there's the question I wanted to actually put to you myself, which is a weak eurozone and a weak China will keep the U.S. dollar strong regardless of softening Fed rate cycle. We've obviously seen that the Fed uh, policy indications are we could you know see things stabilize, let's say more or less uh, going forward. And 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 the big question is when they're going to cut rates, obviously next year. Um, 
Peter, what do you think in terms of US dollar? It has weakened a bit, uh, you know, obviously, relatively speaking, in the last week or two. Um, which what will support it more? You know, what the Fed does or or or, or demand, you know, in other economies, weaker demand and weaker currencies? Uh, I, well, I think just the divergence between the Fed rate and ECB and the yen and, and BOJ and probably to some extent to the to the um, Bank of England is probably enough to keep the 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 rate where it is and the potential for possibly even further rate rises they that 150,000 that we saw in October for the NFP that dropped last Friday uh, that was another reason why you saw the the um I think some of the good news entered to the stock markets um they realized that that's what they want to see is a weakening um, or softness and, you know, not as many jobs and that whole um, discussion point. Are we going to see the Fed move again? Yeah, I, I won't be surprised to see possibly in, I don't think they'll do anything in December, but certainly maybe Q1, Australia lifted rates 25 basis points yesterday. Um, that was our 13th raise. Uh, I think quite, uh, yeah, matter of fact, I won't be surprised to see probably March, maybe the possibility of another rate rise. We've just got to see how retail sales go over Christmas, how unemployment is, how naturally how um, uh, inflation is and the value of the dollar. But, you know, the, the dollar where it is at 105.50, it's given up a little bit of hot steam and it's very, very choppy, but it's a lot stronger than when it was, at, you know, 101. So I think it's, it, I won't be surprised to see it probably go up again from here. It's, it, the markets are volatile, and I think that's what we're going to continue to see till from now till the end of the year. Viala is just uh, you know big volatility swings. Richard, in terms of the Fed policy um, in the US, is there? Um, I mean, are, are, is the sentiment that they're going to be continue to be very serious about this inflation target of two percent? They're still double that. They haven't got there yet. Does Does anyone believe they're really going to keep pushing? Until they get there, or, or or what else could come into that? Well, I think they're 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 getting towards close to the debt trap, right? They they if they raise rates, excuse me, if they lowered rates in the United States, the U.S. housing market would explode to the upside. Um, U.S. housing sales are down. I think the lowest they've been in in like thirty five years because no one wants to sell their house because they have a, a low mortgage. So you have this massive pent up demand. Mm -hmm. You had all this kind of free cash that's been printed. Um, I'm not sure you're aware that the U.S. debt we had a. I think we had. I want to say it's the month. I think we had a trillion dollar debt last month. A trillion dollar debt in a month. I I want to say it's the month. I, it might have been the quarter, but the next one's going to be one point five trillion. So the the kind of the 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 leadership is now having massive debt. So we have massive debt, which is means massive printing of money. So I believe the Fed is seeing that. They know they have to keep the rates. They mm. I can't they can't cut them. That just would be I that seems illogical That's to the extreme. Crazy, right? I it'd be crazy. It'd just be inflationary to the extreme. I think we just take off rents, housing, everything. Um, I agree with Peter that you know sometime in March we probably raise the rates again. But remember now, now we're getting to the point of we're getting rid of all the two, five, and ten year bonds that are at zero interest rates, and they're being replaced by bonds at five and five and a half percent. Um, our debt, I believe, our debt payment now has gone from six hundred interest on debt is from six hundred million. I think it's approaching nine hundred and eighty million billion, excuse me, and I think it's going to pass a trillion dollars in interest debt. So 
It's we're not like no we're not the back. bank. No way back. We're, we're not the Bank <laughs> no of Japan. Out. We're not the Bank of Japan, yeah. right? We we're an open market, and so it's very problematic. I think it's it's going to be a very difficult. It's going to be a rough ride. Um, I think for the next year or so, as okay. we go into as we go into an election year, remember next year. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk. I want to get come back to you on that, but Peter, I'll just jump to you on the Bank of Japan thing. Uh, you know, in terms of you know, slight change of tone there over the last week or two, but but again, I mean, is that having any impact on 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 on, no. on markets beyond Japan? Well, I mean, there was a you know the talk of a change in their yield curve control mechanism. Yeah. The um, the BIG has been quite vocal in the importance of just made some notes of earnings growth and all of those sort of um, stances and trying to be accommodative, but the real, pardon me, but the reality of the matter is you've had a Nikkei that's boomed to the upside. It's been absolutely on fire for the last year and a half or two years, uh, 32,000, nearly 33,000. And uh, you've got a, you've got a yen that the BOJ is not worried about. And it's, you know, 149, 150, 151 oscillates between there. And they're not, don't seem to be too worried about things. So, uh, yeah, I, I suppose with a cheap yen, it's probably um, a contributing factor to their whole philosophy at the moment. And, you know, they're just playing their cards close to their chest. Okay, Andy, let's talk a bit about Europe, just in terms of the economic sentiment. I mean, ECB policy, first of all, they indicated they were going to start slow, you know, freezing any more activity for now a month ago. Um, so they've had enough. Basically, Europe's had enough of that. Is that is that the sort of feeling there? And what you know? And again, gas price spikes as we go into winter. Is there any nervousness around that? Lots of stock around, so maybe not. I I I there's a couple of things. I think we're much better positioned this year than we were last year. Um, but I think the other thing that that kind of going back to the point on interest rates is I think um, we're very very good as human beings at forgetting the past. And I've made the comment previously. I remember. When I bought my first house, our mortgage rate, the interest rate was 14%. In that context, what we're talking about now, which most of the people on the street would say is dreadful, is absolutely nothing. Okay, so we have become almost too used to a very low interest rate environment, and that's actually quite dangerous. You kind of need to have interest rates because people need to save and make money. You need to have interest rates because people have to work to pay back the money they borrow. If you give people free money, well, just keep giving it to me. I'll, I'll just spend it. I'll never pay it back. So I think we are, are, and this is what I think the banks, especially in Europe, are tiptoeing around and the central banks are tiptoeing around is like, well, we, we don't want to go higher because the public sentiment's not there and it's going to be damaging, not because of the interest rates going up, but because the public sentiment will be so bad. But we also don't want to drop it because actually we really don't want to go back down towards zero. It, we're kind of where we are is probably a sensible place to be, but nobody wants us here. So yeah. it's a very difficult balancing act. Nobody wants tough times, obviously. Uh, a weak eurozone, <laughs> a weak China will keep the dollar strong regardless of what the Fed does. Uh, agree, 82%. So, you know, the, 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 the relative value of what's happening in Europe and China will keep the dollar strong. Uh, regardless, Richard, we'll go to you for the last last word today. Give us a bit of a. Please tell me that we're going to have other alternatives to Biden and Trump as as this, you know, unbelievable you run, election cycle. I don't. Continues. I I, I, I have, someone in California, please. 
Uh, we surely don't want Governor Newsom, so we don't want to find him. Um, I don't know if there's somebody. I I really don't. Hello, I think. Obama. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I've asked <laughs> Obama now. I, I've lost yeah. respect. I would have said that. Yeah, Obama. Obama. I don't. You know, it it could be Michelle Obama. She could step in. I mean, I think that'd be crazy to the extreme as well. I mean, um, I I'm at a loss, right? I I am at a complete loss. Um, you know, I think. Everybody outside of uh, a Republican in the in the United States hates Trump, right? So Trump is almost unseen. To be, people can't stand him, uh, even though I think many of his policies were spot on and, and and did all good things. I think his energy policy would have put us in good stead. Uh, Biden, I think, I'm not sure you guys are getting the news over there, but he is getting close to probably an impeachment trial next year um, for him. Um, his, they've found... The the laptop from hell effectively oh uh, has it's, has, it's mm-hmm. no no it's a real laptop and it's and it has a lot of very funky information on it so I think that's going to be problematic and and I think he is not fit to be president right now but so I don't there is none I think you're going to have to just watch with with the popcorn we have popcorn and we just we have, we're going to eat our popcorn and see what happens um, I I tend to think that our bigger issues. Um, are kind of we're a divided country. We are right down the middle. And Andy, you said it to me, said it earlier. No one wants to hear what the other side has to say. Um, I, I don't talk anything to my best friends about energy, right? I'm an oil guy. I've spent 50, 40, 43 years in this business and the la- and they all and everyone has their electric cars. I'll be the last one, I think, to get one. But you know, I think what we're really at is we're in this situation where everybody talks over talks past each other. Um, there is no logic until I, there's no one, there's no meetings of minds. Uh, it's going to be a very, very rocky road here. Yeah. And not just for America. Unfortunately, we're seeing that division uh, accentuate uh, globally over many, many matters. Um, thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us uh, this Thanks, morning. Thanks, Good to see you and uh, have a great remainder of the week.